This episode of the CZ Media Podcast is brought to you by Rancho Bravo Tacos. They have two convenient locations, Capitol Hill and Wallingford. I love going to Capitol Hill. I'll go order my food, whether it be tacos, burritos, or tamal. I love their tamales. They're fantastic. And then I'll go sit on the patio, enjoy my meal, and then wait for something interesting to happen. And given that it's Capitol Hill, something interesting always happens. If you don't have time to go to either location, you can always order through your favorite food ordering app, Uber Eats, Caviar, or Chow Now. They make it really easy to get all of your favorite items. So next time you're craving some delicious Mexican food, stop in or order. You'll be glad you did. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the CZ Media Podcast. Uh, this is show number 50, and I'm super excited about that. And for show number 50, I am super happy to have uh, our friend, Lori and I's friend, Tom Strain- Strongland. Stangland. Stangland. <laughs> we'll need to, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, it, people will understand what how funny that is. Hey, Tom, how's it going? That's good. Nice to be here. Awesome. So uh, as our listeners know, because I've done a few shows with Lori about this, we love wine. And we've been uh, very fortunate to have met quite a few winemakers here in the area, the Seattle people and, uh, you know, Port Townsend and in other places. But the places we keep on coming to over and over again because we love all of the product is Cloudlift, and you make the wine at Cloudlift. That's what I do. So tell me a little, like, tell me a little bit about that. What's the, what's it like? What's the day to day like for a winemaker? Well, I would like to think that ninety percent of it is working on the wine and making the wine, but really ninety percent of it is trying to figure out how to sell the wine. Got to sell uh, it. To, you got to move it. That's right. And so, uh, but the real fascinating part for me is making the wine. And in fact, we are just on the tail end of harvest. I have almost completely put to bed the twenty nineteen wines, and um, that's the most exciting time of the year. You know, it starts. Nice kind of in mid-August, 
in preparation, getting everything clean. Uh, I will talk about cleaning and winemaking a lot because that's <laughs> what you do most of the time is clean. But yes, getting everything set up and ready. And then another really cool part is um, if, you know, I'm a Seattle winemaker, but grapes, the best grapes don't grow here. The best grapes grow on the other side of the mountain. So there's a lot of road trips, checking mm. the grapes, visiting the vineyards, talking to your vineyard managers, letting them know kind of what you're after and what style, when you tend to pick, that kind of thing. So, um, oh. so, so how do you decide which vineyards to go to? Well, um, I was probably a lot like you and Lori in that I loved wine, drank lots of wine. So when it actually occurred to me that I could do this, I started reading the labels on the bottles okay. <laughs> and I started looking at the vineyards these places were coming from. And then I'd reach out to them and find out if they had fruit available. And a lot of times they wouldn't have fruit available. They'd be booked until the last minute. And this oh. is one of the things I learned. It's sort of like, okay, I'd make my commitments elsewhere. And then I'd get a call. You know, it's saying, hey, you know, you wanted these two tons of Sauvignon Blanc and we can give them to you. Well, we can sell them to yeah. you. Yeah. And uh, except that at that point, I'd already made uh, a contingency plan. So so one of the things I've come to do is leave a little wiggle space um, in the amount I'm doing because you only have so many barrels, only so many tanks. There's only so much you want to make. Um, I have a certain size building and I let that dictate how I much see. wine I'm going to make. So capacity and, is what will right, fit yeah. comfortably. But I have learned to leave a little bit of space because every year something it's like, boy, I wish I knew I would have done that. So now I've come to, uh, realize that, hey, this is probably going to happen. So I'm going to leave space for a couple of unexpected tons. Yeah. So when something interesting does come up, boom, I can go get it. Okay. So if uh, so if there's a varietal that you haven't done that you could, you have room for that. Exactly. Okay. In fact, it happened a bunch of times this year. Nice. Which can you tell us about one? Right. So uh, so at the beginning of the year, uh, early in the harvest, I was thinking, boy, I decided I'd really like to make some Viognier. I mean, it was a thought. It was yeah. a fantasy. I've always kind of I've in fact, I've had a fantasy about making every grape under the sun or vinifying. <laughs> it. Um, but, you know, I started talking about it and then there it was. An email came into the inbox, and it, in fact, it turned out to be uh, somebody that I knew they had to break their commitment for reasons of their own, and I was able to get that Viognier, oh. and that was excited. And then then I came across another opportunity to get uh, a Malbec, which I had never done, from Red Mountain, which is a really great site. I've mostly not gotten fruit from Red Mountain. Usually I get fruit from the Horse Heaven Hills, the Yakima okay. Valley, the Waluk Slope. Um, but uh, this opportunity came up, so I pounced on it. And so is this is your first Malbec? Yes, it is. I'm excited for that. That's my favorite one. Yeah. Well, yeah. it has been for like about a year and a half. 
And for a really young wine, it's tasting really nice. But, you know, uh, I don't really like to make too many decisions about anything, you know, uh, a month after going into a barrel. Yeah. Just wait to wait to see how it progresses on its own. This is the thing people don't really understand about winemaking. It takes time. Yeah. And as a culture, <laughs> we don't have a lot of patience. No. We want it now. Right. That uh, that buy one click buy. And it knows where it ship it to, and I'm going to get it tomorrow. Doesn't happen in winemaking <laughs> no. that way. Which is good because the at the end we can enjoy something that is uh, expertly crafted, and we can enjoy it. So the 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 winemaking is that has has that always been what you've been into? Is this uh, is this like a lifelong thing? Did you do anything else that transitioned to this? Basically, my whole life is about making things. So. Um, and on a certain level, I don't even really differentiate. Um, as I was growing up, I made airplanes that, you know, they were U-control planes. So they'd be on 50-foot lines and we'd fly in circles <laughs> and, you know, we'd spend, you know, weeks and weeks making these things, fly them for about 15 minutes and crash them. Yeah. You know? And then we'd go back to our basements and make them and make them. <laughs> Of course, then we became teenagers and teenage boys. What are we? We're into speed. So we started making these things that could go in excess of 100 miles an hour. And of course, when they crash, boy, they just they don't yeah, crash. They, they explode. Disintegrate. So 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 I would, you know, fly for about 30 seconds and then, you know, make <laughs> another plane for about, you know, three weeks and then, you know, go fly. And and so that actually led me to uh, I mean. To make something fly, you've got to build it really accurately. Yeah. You know, these uh, these weren't kits so much to say as you would buy plans and they oh, would have okay. templates and you'd make all the, the little ribs out of balsa wood and connect them with spars right. and everything. It had to be flat and straight. Otherwise, it wouldn't fly straight. Yeah. And, and then we'd cover it with with these uh, fabric coatings and paint them. And of course I always wanted to be really pretty because you know, you want to look cool. Yeah. It's so, got to look cool. So, uh, um, and that led me to just exploring different materials. And I kind of always loved wood and metal and the combination of things. And that sort of led me to making furniture and other gorgeous things out of, you know, precious materials. Ooh. Now, in between all that, you know, I went to high school, went to college. And uh, while I was in college, I kind of worked my way through uh, being a dinner chef um, in, a, in a restaurant. I mean, I actually started as a baker and then a dishwasher and then a line cook. And then I just got more responsibility. And then I was getting ready to graduate college and I was looking at my role models and they were all getting pretty, you know, burnt out and kind of alcoholic in their <laughs> early 30s. And I thought, okay, you know, this isn't the life for me. Yeah. And uh, one of my woodworking mentors uh, offered me a job at the time for $5 an hour. And I thought, well, this is cool. You made you it. Know, I can, yeah, I can, I can, uh, I can make furniture. And I thought I really wasn't supposed to, you know, take a job in something I love doing so much like a hobby because aren't you supposed to hate your job? Yeah. You know, it's sort of, so then I realized, OK, I don't have to hate my job. But there were other frustrations with a job like that because 
I didn't make very much money. Right. So the idea of free time and time <laughs> off, let's just forget about that. Okay. And so but you were happy doing what you're doing. I did. And, and ironically, I guess I did have some success. I mean, I bought a house and I actually bought a commercial building to have my shop in, got married and raised family and did all that stuff. And, uh, um, and then at some point, well, you know, the, the great thing about a craft like furniture making is you don't stop learning. You yeah. know, there's there's always a challenge. There's there's something else. And and that will always be a part of my life. But something said, hey, I want to make wine. Okay. There's so much good wine out there and all these people are doing it. And it's like, well, I want to be one of those guys. And I didn't want to do it. Well, it sort of started off as a hobby. But if I'm going to do a hobby, I want to do it as well as kind of anybody can. Yeah. And, and so I realized I, I kind of started, I started going to wine school. I went to the South Seattle college where they have the Northwest wine Academy. And, and basically the big boys make wine in 225 liter barrels, you know, that's 60 gallons of wine. Yeah. Okay. Um, so just to give you an idea what 60 gallons of wine is, if you drink five bottles of wine a week for a year, that's a barrel. Okay, so Holy so cow. for personal use, you know. Now, of course, I could surpass that because basically my wife and I share a bottle of wine every night with dinner. That's just part of our life. Yeah. And, and if we have company, it's going to be a little bit more. A little bit more. But, but basically, yes, we drink a half a bottle a night. And uh, but yeah, so the uh, the to have it as a uh, hobby, the household maximum is I think about three barrels you know, per, per head of household and all that, which is a ridiculous amount of wine. So that's a, a regulation. Yes. That's yeah. There are a bunch of laws and regulations <laughs> about wine, alcohol in general. Right. So that, otherwise they'll say, why do you want so much? You're going to be selling it in which case that's right. a whole yeah, other. So, so basically I didn't set out to start a winery. I set out making wine. Yeah. And I had to make, I first made three barrels, and then I made more because there's different kinds of barrels. There's American oak barrels, there's French oak barrels, there's once-used barrels, there's neutral barrels, and all these combinations with the different varietals. Yeah. And then there's blending, putting everything together. So you need this whole big array of, of, of integers and things to play with yeah. to really get the wine right. Now, some people do single vineyard, single bottle. This is, I got this, you know, I got these grapes from this vineyard and I'm making it and I'm not putting else in it. And, and, and that's a way, you know, some people do that, but somehow, you know, I think that a blended wine is better and it's not so much, that I'm trying to take away. I always want to have a dominant grape in my blends. Okay. So I'm starting with my Merlot blend, for instance. Okay. Um, and that will be very good. But like in the old days, we used to call the, the, the photographers called it airbrushing. Okay. Now we got Photoshop. Okay. So, <laughs> so you've got this picture and it's a great picture, but you see this little yeah. thing in the corner and well, you know, in Photoshop, well, we can take that out because yeah, we finesse it, it doesn't add to the picture. Yeah. In fact, or it distracts. It, exactly. And we can do that, you know, we can soften up an edge, you know, we can, we can 
ease the harsh tannins of, of a young wine by giving it a little less tannic fruit there. And by blending, I think you can actually, you know, soften and adjust something. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, hoping to get a home run on one, you know, once again, there's the argument of, oh, let the <clears throat> fruit speak. It's like, but don't they call us winemakers? Yeah. You know, if we were supposed to not intervene at all, then what's the point? <laughs> Otherwise, there's no uh, uh, your own personal traits in there, your own. Well, it's it's one of the ways that you can. I mean, and there's many ways that the winemaker can part can impart his style to mm -hmm. the wine. But uh, but definitely blending is one of the ways to do it for me. And there is definitely a house style. So if you come in and don't like the first one or two of my wines, well, you're probably not going to like any of them. But typically, the <laughs> you know, people come in like them. That's interesting that you phrased it that way, because as I was thinking, you know, Lori and I, we've we belong to a few different uh, wine clubs. And for the most part, we be, we belong to wine clubs that we like the most, you know, obviously a lot of their their how varietals is that how is that the correct way to say it um but for every one of those there's definitely one that i don't like and there's definitely some that Lori don't like but we since we overlap it's it it's it works but with cloudlift we like all of them <laughs> like there's not there isn't one where when we open up the box where we say where i say for sure well this one's yours and or Lori will say this one is yours, so I'll put it on my side. It's the cloud lift box goes in the middle because we we'll, can both take it and we're gonna both we're gonna love whichever one we we get. And that's not the case with the other clubs that we belong to. So the, it, I, it, I think that just goes along with what you had just said, where your style, your signature. If you dig it, you'll you'll dig the others. Right, and 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 I do appreciate hearing that. Thank you. <laughs> um, but and the other side, I other thing I have to say that you know is is people will be in the tasting room, and you know, uh, as a winemaker, most winemakers aren't in their tasting room. I'm always in my tasting room, yeah. so so I'm hearing from people right away, and and I'll hear people say, "Oh, I don't like that," and they'll look at me. It's, it's okay. <laughs> I'm pouring nine wines. You're bound to like one of them. You know? How do you? Uh, so as you know, with me and my with with pictures, if I show a picture to someone, um, and they say it's okay, like I don't like that. I would rather have them say I really like it or I don't like it at all. I don't want the middle. Is uh, when when you get feedback from from people who are visiting the taste room, do you want a yes or a no, and then like go ugh, with the middle with the 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 in betweeners? Like which what type of reaction do you want a, a a solid yes or a solid no? And then does the middle make you feel like like that that bugs you? It's very interesting. It's more important to me who's doing the talking than what they're saying. You know, if it's oh, okay, you know, if, if a stranger comes in, you know, um, and they're indifferent, it, it's sort of when, wine is a funny thing. You can have a lot of knowledge about wine and there's a lot of people that think they have a lot of knowledge yeah. about wine <laughs> and they come in, you know, um, so, so basically um, with wine, it's really simple. A lot of people will come in and say, oh, I don't know much about wine. And, right. and 
And I will say, oh, I beg to differ. I think you know a lot. I think, you know, and I will hold my thumb up, you know what you like, or I'll hold my thumb down and I'll say, you know what you don't like. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you know a lot about wine, you will go in great detail on what you like and why and this and that. But what's even worse is if you don't like the wine, you'll go on and on about how you don't. <laughs> and, 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 and that's nice. And I can generally understand their words and all that. And I can sort of do the same thing, but I don't uh, because, you know, what's the point? Right. Um, uh, now, it is really fun. I'm part of a regular tasting group and we get together and we describe flavors and aromas. And over the course of the night, we'll realize that these flavors and aromas have changed. And that's why mm. people get really hooked into wine. Yeah. But so um, as far as the immediate criticisms, um, if my wife told me I hated it, I'd be crushed. It'd be <laughs> devastating. That would be the worst. You know, the people that I care about. Now, I, I got to make the wine for myself mm -hmm. and trust that it's good. Yeah. Okay. And um, sometimes you get verified uh, by the culture. Um uh, I've been on the Seattle Times top 50 wines of the year several times. Nice. I've got 90 and higher point ratings. I've won gold medals and double gold medals. And those things are all nice. And in a sense, they're nice because it validates you in the eyes of a public that otherwise doesn't necessarily have another way to see you side by side right. with the others. So, I see. So, so it lends some credibility, you know, but the real thing is, hey, put some in the glass. And if you like it, that's all. <laughs> if you like it and you can afford it, you know, that's that's it. And and quite honestly, I try to keep my my wines are probably less expensive than most of my peers because I want them to be accessible to people. Yeah. I don't want people to drink them and enjoy them. Right. So they can have them. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And you do a fantastic job at that. I was as as you're as you're describing that, I'm thinking of my first uh adventure into wine drinking, which of course was because of Lori. So uh before her, I had never tasted wine before. I was very uh very basic in my alcohol consumption, which was mostly rum and cokes <laughs> or Long Island iced teas. <laughs> So I came out, Lori and I had our, our first date and, uh, and no, what, what was it? Well, there's this whole other thing, which I think we've spoken about where we did long distance dating for a bit. So the first time that I came out to Seattle from Chicago, Lori made dinner, told me to open a bottle of wine. So she gave me the bottle, gave me a bottle opener, and I had no idea what to do. Never done it before. And I was just looking at it and I put it down. And then when Lori came back out and she's like, why didn't you open it? I was like, well, and I was probably a little embarrassed that I couldn't. And then, of course, she laughed at me a little bit and she opened it and it was a Riesling. I remember it was a Riesling. And I was like, this is fantastic. It's like it's it's juice. It was sweet. So for for a long time, I would just gravitate only to the whites, to the sweet stuff, to the super, the sweeter, the better. But in the past three years it's completely reversed now 
where I'm looking for the driest, <laughs> the driest reds. But I'm not smart enough to know what I like or don't like about it. Like Lori will say, this smells like bell pepper. But after she says it, then I'll say, okay, there is bell pepper in there, or there's pepper, or there's black pepper in there, or there's cherries or whatever. But I don't, I don't uh, analyze it like that initially. I just taste it, and if I like it, that's pretty much it. Like my brain stops thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But I think I should make more of an effort to kickstart my brain or force it to really think of it. Um, because then they could, I, well, I don't know. Then I guess the notes would make more sense. It but I just want to drink it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> don't take the fun out of the wine, you know. And and actually, I think you're almost proving my point a little bit. So you taste it and you either like it or you don't like yeah, it. Yeah, pretty know? much. There's not a lot of middle ground. Yeah. But so, I never, when we go tasting, if there's one I don't like, um, I don't comment. <laughs> I don't say anything. I just say, okay, you know. So I'm um, my value system, I guess you can say a lot of it is based off of what I think is rude or not. Like a lot of a lot of things that people do uh, that that uh, may be questionable, like I don't necessarily put a label on it. I'll just say that's rude, like just rude as a person. You're just being rude. I think it's rude to if you get if you're at a tasting and you don't like it to pour it out. But that's just me because obviously people do it all the time. But it's like, come on, you can. Okay, I'm going to catch you right there and okay. say there's a lot of people. <laughs> reason, there's a lot of reasons people can pour out wine. And yeah. you know what? We all have dump buckets and it's got to be okay. But the number one reason is, hey, you know, Carlos, you and I are big guys. You know, we can sit through, drink nine ounces of wine, get in our car, and we'll probably be fine. Okay. That's okay. And, right. and if we've You're got right. like a 145 pound woman that's, you know, 70 years old, um, and we do this, expect the same thing, you know, so we're going to, we're going to let her pour out her wine, or even if she's not you know, that configuration or, or it's a guy, you know, you're right. They can pour out I wine. It's, it's not rude. If now they could probably do it in a really rude way, like stare at you say, this is crap and pour it four <laughs> feet high. Okay. That would be rude. You know, there's rude ways of doing everything. Right. So, so are even saying, you know, I don't like this. Okay. There could be a rude way of saying that in the tasting room or, a fine way. Yeah. You know, I, I don't mind hearing criticisms of my wine. For instance, you know, a lot of people like big tannins in their wine. And, you know, quite honestly, I'm a bit tannin averse. So I'm always working on dropping the tannins mm -hmm. out a little bit, just making them, working to make them silky. You know, I don't want that to be the bottom line of it. But for a lot of people, that that sensation of feeling tannins, which is a big kind of feeling kind of in the back of the throat and, and the lower part of the jaw that's part of the finish. It helps give a wine a lot of finish, but sometimes it can just be a little bit overwhelming. It also right. make you kind of, you know, um, a little bit thirsty in a way. So, so, you know, if somebody tells me that, gee, I wish it had a little bit more tannin, I could understand that. Okay. You know? But well, I will, I'll, uh, I will reprogram my brain to not have it be uh rude to have people dump it out. Cause I've told that to Lori before where 
we're at a tasting and I, I'll give it to her. And she was like, no, I don't want it either. And then she'll say, dump it out. I'm like, no, I can't dump it out. Like, I don't want the wine. I don't want the person pouring the wine to see me dump it out. So I'll just, I'll just drink it. Okay. Oh, you're right. I'm rather large. I can get, I can get away with okay, it. Okay. So, so <laughs> before I was really into wine, I, I had a friend and, and, uh, um, she took me to a wine event and, and we went as friends, we were buddies, you know, but I'd never been to a major wine event before. Mm-hmm. And, and she worked in the industry. So she knew everybody and it was fascinating watching her talk to all the different wine representatives and all that. Yeah. And so, and, you know, we'd go there, they'd pour wine in our glass, we'd sip some of it and walk away. And I remember one time saying to her, I really don't like this. And he says, it's fine. Use the dump bucket. Just don't pour out in front of the people that we were talking to. Oh. <laughs> so go to the next one, pour it out there. You know? Yeah. I guess that's a, that I should probably do that. Well, it would probably be a good idea for me to pour out a, a little bit of them because, uh, at the, if you don't, uh, well, I've proven this time and time where at the end of the night, like everything tastes fantastic. And then you, you buy things that, you know, a week later you were like, why, why did I buy why that? Did I buy? <laughs> well, there was once where uh, we were out in, where were we? Yeah, someone in Yakima? Um, Walla Walla. We were in Walla Walla on a tour. And then the last stop, they had they had this wine where the, the selling point was that it tasted like, it tasted like popcorn. And we t- we tasted and it was fantastic. We got like three bottles of it. It was a white wine, I take it. Yeah, yeah. And like a week later, we opened a bottle, and it was not at all like we remembered. But then we did remember say, but we thought you know popcorn was so good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, pouring somehow would probably be good. Um, will be good. So in your shop, all of the equipment is in your shop. You do it all in your like there. Do you have like offsite manufacturing or all all within your four walls? Um, so um, with the exception of growing fruit, um, all the winemaking activities takes place, you know, where where my tasting room is. So I have a tiny little tasting room. It's maybe, I don't know, 300 square feet. Mm-hmm. And then there's a doorway and it goes into a 4000 square foot building. And that's where uh, I bring the fruit. We crush and destem, and then we press, and then we barrel age. All, all the, all the process happens there. How many guys do you like? What do you got? Like ten guys helping oh, you no. do all this? No, <laughs> uh, I do have. I mean, people come and volunteer at harvest, um, and I mean, it's. I started doing this, and you know all my energy is behind it. And how could you not want to do this? In fact, I'd bring my kids and my wife because, Hey, this is the coolest thing on earth. Don't you want to come down and do this? And I remember when my now 26 year old daughter was a teenager and, you know, she would just roll her eyes. It's like, I don't want to be at harvest. I don't want to do that. And of course, then she went off to college and she was in Vermont and one of her friends um, had another friend and they had all these apples and they were putting them into an apple press. But, but the person that ran the apple press wasn't around. And all of a sudden my daughter was very cool because she knew how to work a press. <laughs> she like, knew how to get oh, it going. Oh, this isn't so bad. Having hey, this knowledge after all. Yeah. It'll come in handy and it'll yes. make you the hero. 
Exactly. Yes. And, and, and to her credit, she came back and, and helped me with a couple of vintages. So, so lately my, uh, uh, my eldest son has been all my kids and my wife and many of my friends and my siblings have helped me in the winery. Um, but quite honestly, I went and helped at a lot of wineries because it's the coolest thing in the world. You get all this fruit and you hang around and you're throwing, you get sticky and messy and it's encouraged. It's like, well, gosh, Carlos, you've done it too. You know what it's like. It is, you know what, it's an interesting process and it just, the appreciation factor after the fact, it just goes up knowing the amount of work that goes into it, the, the, the care, the attention to detail that needs to be in there so that you can have this bottle you open and it, it tastes fantastic. Um, I, yeah, I think more people need to see this. Um, you know, if you cook, like I love to cook. I made uh, I made Lori a, a, a nice dinner last night with some some tu- uh, yellowtail tuna and scallops and this nice butter wasabi sauce. And she opened up her favorite bottle and it was like to cap off a great a great dinner for her. So what meal. did you have with that dinner? I don't know what she what she opened. I had started before she got home and. I don't pair stuff, so I, you know, you're, they say you're supposed to do white with fish. I w- w- started drinking um, this this red blend that was Merlot, Cap Sauv, and Cap, Cap Franc, and to me, it tasted great <laughs> with the tuna. <laughs> like that's what I'm saying. My brain doesn't do. My brain doesn't analyze it that way. But Lori went and checked, and I, I don't know. I forget which one she. She opened, but Lori went and picked out the one that she wanted, which was different than mine. But I, she looks, she thinks of it that way. I don't do, I don't do that yet. But I don't know. Do you think I should? Um, I think you should drink what you like with what you have. I am probably closer to doing the ideal you're talking about of the classic pairings because I've found that they kind of work for me. You know? <laughs> There's a so, reason for so, it. <laughs> so, well, let's take, okay. So what do we got coming in front of us? We have Thanksgiving. Okay. Yeah. And, and, but Thanksgiving comes with in November and it's cold outside. So there's a big part of the population that says, Hey, it's cold. I'm drinking red wine. That's it. Yeah. But you know, I mean, somehow when we're little kids, we know that, okay, you drink white wine with fish and chicken and you drink red wine with beef. And, yeah. and, and what's a turkey, you know, as my daughter said, when she was a little girl, that's a mighty big chicken. And, <laughs> and so, so I actually really like, you know, so think about classic, I mean, Thanksgiving truly is one of the toughest times to pair, but when we start with the basics, okay, turkey, mashed potatoes and gravy. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I really like a nice, rich Chardonnay. I think that's like the perfect wine that goes with that. But then we're going to throw in the cranberry and the sausage stuffing and then yams. And it's like, right. okay, so there's so many things all over the map that, you know, so so what I recommend, you know, of the wines, you know, my, my little Thanksgiving threesome is like, okay, for early on starters, okay, we're having, we're having a family gathering. Now, Fortunately, my family, we all get along really well, but there's a lot of families <laughs> they get together and it's like, 
you know, they start getting in fights. So, and alcohol leads to that. So, we start off with a rosé, which is typically lower in alcohol. Okay. And you can drink more of that, okay? And it's it's bright, it's sharp, it goes with a lot of nice appetizer foods, yeah. goes with that cranberry sauce, you know, fits in all those things. I already talked about Chardonnay, but then there's the red wine that everybody wants. So, so of the wines that I make, I mean, actually... All of them will go, especially if we go with, if you drink with what you like, mm -hmm. you won't have any problems. But I really like my uh, my blend that I call Zephyr, and it's Grenache, Syrah, and Morvedra. And it's really, it's lush on one hand and really fruity, but it doesn't have those kind of tannins that you need sort of bigger red meat to kind of cut okay. through and balance out. You know, it, it, it goes really well with all those things. My son and his wife are going to be out of town on Thanksgiving. So they had Thanksgiving, uh, before they sell, they had both sides of the family over, uh, before Halloween, the weekend oh. before Halloween. And Super I brought early. over a bunch of Zephyr and it was very popular. We drank it all <laughs> and, you know, had a great Turkey. He cooked it on his grill. It was wonderful. Ooh, that sounds great. Yeah, with um, so Chardonnay. I'll uh, well, is that so? That's the that's like a go-to with the turkey, mashed well, potatoes, and gravy. Same thing. I mean, one of you know. Okay, so you know, I I have three kids, but now we're a family of it's me, my wife, and the cat. You yeah. Know? So <laughs> so a lot of times when we're having this like luxurious little feast, we'll cook a whole chicken. You know, yeah. because there's only two of us, you know, <laughs> and even that's more food than we're going to eat. But so we'll cook it kind of like, a, you know, roast a whole chicken and and maybe, you know, we'll have potatoes, maybe not necessarily gravy, but, you know, some other vegetables. But, you know, Chardonnay is definitely a great go to with that. You know, it just all the flavors just kind of work. So when you do the food pairing, when you start to go down that path, it's very true that the wine makes the food taste better and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm trying, you know, one of the events that's very popular, and actually I'm going to do it in, in an unusual time. Have you ever been to a, a chocolate and wine pairing yeah. at the winery? And have you noticed how good those combinations we do are? You know, they yes. just see pairing chocolate with wine can be very dangerous because wine is made up of a combination of bitter and sweet flavors. Mm -hmm. To winemakers, the term bitter isn't a bad word, okay? But to a lot of people, bitter is, ooh, I don't want anything bitter, I want sweet. Well, well, wine is, you know, like people, you know? You don't just get Barbie, you get, you know, all of it. Right. Barbie and Maud and, you know, <laughs> and Frankenstein and, you know, whatever kind of comes up at those various times. Um, and so... So if you have a chocolate or or a confection that's sweeter than the wine, what you do is you wipe out any of the sweet flavors that the wine has and oh, all okay. you taste is bitter, you know, if you have gotcha. them together. And so that can happen. It's the same concept that happens with food. So now I, I will do a little plug because in the first weekend of December, um, my friend, the chocolatier, a chocolatier, her name is Riona, has decided that she would like to come and she's going to bring confections that she never does because she just makes them at Christmas. Ooh. You know, so so we're going to do that uh, pairing again. And then she's going to go off to Costa Rica for two months. There so. you go. 
some chocolate, so, and then I'm off to uh, the uh, beach. That's right. Nice. Yeah, I, I think you're you're. Uh, I'll take what you're saying as a challenge to really think about it, and then not just because I'm a. Uh, I, it's taken me 15 years to learn how to sip. I'm a gulper. I gulp. I don't. I don't eat. I inhale. Like I can, if we would, Lori and I go out, I can have my meal finished before she's finished with, you know, before she's even halfway done with her food, I'm done. I need to slow it down a little bit and really understand what I'm doing because of all the work that's behind it. <laughs> and you got to, ch- actually, you get these moments to savor and enjoy. No, I, I, I've been much the same way. And I'd say that, okay, um, well, I've got 18 years on you, Carlos. So I've learned <laughs> to slow down a little bit, you know, and 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 get uh, take a little more time because you just to get to enjoy it a little bit longer. Yeah, still I need way to, too fast. I need to do that. So the um, w- how many varietals do you have? Do you make? I am currently pouring uh, nine different bottles, but the numbers that I vinify is more than that. For instance, because, you know, in just one blend, the, the Zephyr that I talked about before, there's three varietals and I don't do those individually. So, so I probably go out and buy about 14 different kinds of grapes okay. know, in a given year. Okay. Yeah. There's <laughs> the, the studio is not flooding. There's <laughs> There's a, uh, there's upstairs action. So, so the tell me what the nine are that you have at the moment. Let's see. I have uh, Cabernet Franc, both as rosé and as a red wine. Chardonnay, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon, uh, Grenache, Syrah, Morvedra. There's uh, Merlot, there's Cabernet Sauvignon, and there's Petit Verdot and Malbec. I th- oh, and I left out the Viognier. So the Malbec. When is that? Well, you, w- if you had to guess. Oh, typically two years. You know, two and a half years from. The- <gasps> Uh, it's going to be in that barrel that long. So basically it'll be in the barrel. So this is 2019. Uh, it's in the barrel now. It'll be in the barrel all next year. And then, uh, in 21 in the spring, probably, you know, March or April, I'll start doing blending trials. And that's to say, okay, do I like this Malbec? all by itself Mm -hmm. or do I want to touch it up with anything that I have lying around in the room? Mm. And I won't know that until then. And there's a great likelihood it could just be Malbec, Mm. you know, and, and, and there's a a good opportunity of that, but knowing me, I'll might want (laughs) to just give it a little dollop, a little bit of this or that, you know, just, I'm excited. Like I said, I've, uh, I've favored the Malbec and the Capsov for maybe a year now uh, where, you know, the I've really I've really liked those. But there's a lot of Merlot Capsov blends that are really good, too. And see, I'm actually impressed with myself that I remembered what those two were. (laughs) It's so good. So so two years Two years in a barrel before you start fine tuning it and getting ready to bottle. Right. So when you started, 
as a hobby, like you, you, you know, you had mentioned you because you wanted to do it as a hobby. You weren't necessarily thinking of making money or starting a winery. Well, okay, so let's let's make everything. Let's lay, put our cards on the table. Okay, <laughs> I worked in a restaurant. Do you think I made a lot of money? I worked as a furniture maker. Do you think I made a lot of money? Well, some of the pieces. I mean, every piece you make is an absolute masterpiece. But they take a lot of time. Wow. So, so, uh, uh, I remember, you know, when I decided I wanted to start making wine. Um, and the truth is I take perfectly good hobbies and I turn them into careers yeah. because I can't do them as hobbies. I can't really do it on a, you know, really small scale, like yeah. in the basement, you right. know, it's, you it's, go uh, big, right. Or, or bigger. And, uh, and, and, one of my wife's childhood friends was a uh, a bookkeeper at uh, a pretty established winery in Woodenville, and and once again I say established, you know they were known, they had great marketing, they were in grocery stores all over the place, um, and she comes up to me and she says, you know Tom, there's not a lot of money in winemaking. <laughs> I said, Marcy, I've been a professional furniture maker all my life. I'm looking at this as a lateral move. <laughs> well. Yeah, I I hear you, uh, but you, I know there is a whole lot of time involved. But let's see, what, what how am I trying to phrase this? I guess it's like you should this the furniture stuff should I mean that that should be in museums, like what um, well some of it is. <laughs> <laughs> then that seems really nuts that that was not uh. The, I don't want to say more profitable for you, but more well, profitable. I'm I'm happy with what it got me. I was able. Hey, I have a house on Capitol Hill. I own my building in Georgetown. I've raised three kids and I'm married and I love my wife and I'm still married. I even got a cat. You know, it's like I've got a lot of things for doing something that, you know, I've gotten to be self-employed. I've gotten yeah. to be my own boss. Probably. Problem is, you know, people think, oh, it's great. You get to do what you love to do. It's like, well, we've got to do it all the time. Yeah. I don't need to tell you that. You know, it takes a self-employed person 12 hours to get in an eight-hour day. Exactly. So, so, and working seven days a week is kind of the norm for me. So when I get some time off, I'm really grateful. Well, most of the time (laughs) I don't. Thank you for taking time (laughs) to come. So when was the... do you still do the furniture now? Is that back to being a hobby? Have you, when was the last time you made something? Actually, um, my son gave me a lot of help in doing various things. And he had a project actually it was a project for a friend of his. So we had to do that the other day. And, but, <laughs> but, but the funny thing is it's like, okay, yeah, I still have all my tools and all my equipment and all my materials, except that I've got wine stuff piled on top of them. So it's sort of, it's like the first hour is going to be dedicated to moving things to around clean, so we yeah. can get at the tools. Yeah. But, uh, but then it's actually really entertaining and nice to even do a dorky little project. So, <laughs> so, and, I, you know, and I still, uh, I've been teaching uh, furniture making classes at a school back in Indiana for, I don't know, the last 20 years or more. And I remember thinking after I had kind of become more of a winemaker than furniture maker. In other words, I wasn't spending most of my time making furniture. I was spending most of my time making and selling wine. Yeah. And I went back to teach and I thought, oh, 
am I going to remember how to do this? And it took all of about three seconds to realize, you know, I don't forget this. No, you it's, know? it's muscle memory and ingrained right? in your psyche. Right. The So that class that you teach, you so you go back to Indiana to do it, or is it I like an online class? No, 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 no. It's, it's, no, furniture making, it's very hands-on. Oh, you, you can't do it you, from... <laughs> I wouldn't even... do it from a video. You know, I... So... You know, a lot of times, you know, uh, the classes are, are week long classes and they're usually centered around the project. But the project uh. is more of a vehicle to learn the various processes that go into make because, you know, it's sort of like uh, uh, the story of uh, giving a person a fish or teaching them how to yeah. fish, you know, and mostly I would rather teach the process so they can expand this in their yeah. own creativity. Give them but the best way to do that is through a project. Yeah. And the real talented people will be able to take the project and understand all the little elements of what went into it so they can apply them elsewhere. Gotcha. You know? Gotcha. So there's a lot of uh, different techniques in this one project. and Right. And in fact, you know, to do one operation, there's usually four or five different ways. And I will try to talk about all that. And then I'll say, I've decided to do it this way because that's what works best in my shop. And right. that's how I've done it. That's not to say, you know, it's like, for instance, making a mortise and tenon joint. Well, you can use a mortiser and a drill press and other, and a, you know, just a chisel and a hammer to make uh, a mortise. And then to make the tenons, you could use a, tan, a, a bandsaw, a table saw, um, once again, a handsaw. It's just what you're most comfortable right. with. And there's understanding the limitations of all the various choices that you make. Exactly. Yeah. I, I worked in a shop for a long time, a machining shop, and uh, I'm equating to what you're saying to a fabricator where you have to know these concepts in order to make something and you don't know what the end result might be. But I I, I would try to pay attention, but I, I just couldn't do like one of the my biggest um, issues was that I could not cut or draw anything straight to save my life. And I think that's sort of important if you're trying to make <laughs> like well, I can machine stuff like we we machine stuff that had a point zero zero three tolerance. And there was a whole lot of, you know, tool life and speed and for like all those things like I could do that. But if someone gave me a piece of material and said, here, you need to cut this at these in, in, in this size, that would mess it all up. Like if I were a farmer and uh, had to plow my field, my lines would be all over. Mm. And that's with zero wine. That's well, just that's, that's not true, Carlos. <laughs> no. So so what you were talking about was a thousandth of an inch or actually three thousandths yeah. of an inch. You know, so um, and when you get to be good, you get to understand why a thousandth of an inch matters or why it might not. Yeah. You know, if you try to do everything to a thousandth of an inch all the time, you ain't going to get anything done. There right. are times, you know, so 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 a good creator knows that. Yeah. And this is sort of this is, is kind of nice and analogous to how my life and approach to building things is, you know, with wine. Well, a thousandth of an inch doesn't come into play, but the concept of it does. Yeah. Sometimes you have to pay close attention. I mean, all your attention, 
Okay. And you need to get this part very right because it matters now and you won't really have another choice. Right. You know, in a woodworking project, you know, there are, or, or any kind of a project, there is going to come that point, you know, in all of it. You need to have a very good plan ahead of time. Exactly. You don't want to start shooting from the hip once you've got your <laughs> material on a tool. No. You know, you want to know what you're doing and where you're going, you know. And then, you know, taking the whole thing back to cooking, you want to make sure that you don't overcook your design. Yeah. Know what is right. You know, be ready for something spontaneous good. Sometimes you can have happy accidents, but most accidents are accidents and aren't happy. Exactly. You know? so, but if you do everything <laughs> right, every step of the way, if something goes a little sideways, it's not going to be that big a deal. Right. And the only way everything goes right every step of the way is if you plan you pay attention and you let things happen in their own time. Yeah. That's a big part about waiting for wine to be done. You know, yeah, there might be things you can do to force it to be done. Right. But who knows what consequences exactly. will come later. Like stick with the tried and true <clears throat> to ensure that your, your product is good at the end. Um, yeah. The, I'm, I'm also thinking of uh, when I develop film, like I developed my own black and white film. And I need to ensure that I'm exposing correctly in camera. But then I also need to make sure that I mixed my developer correctly and that I mixed my uh, fixer correctly and that I put that I have my film in the developer for the right amount of time, that the temperature of the developer is right at its, its, its desired. Like there's like a whole lot of other things. And when I'm done... And I open my canister and I see a properly developed negative, then it's it's like the best thing on earth. <laughs> it's like it worked. Now it actually works. One of the things I do a lot of times, I do this in my own woodworking and when I teach, and this is what most people don't do, is um, for instance, if I'm making a chair and I have seat rails and there's going to be a tenon on the end of that seat rail, okay, instead of practicing or trying to make the perfect tenon on my perfect piece of wood for my seat rail, I have milled some extra wood, maybe mm. not the same size, but the necessary thickness yeah. so that I can recreate the same with the same material that went through the same tools at the same time. You know, right. we refer to that as the test piece. Okay. <laughs> so it's much better to test on something that you can throw into the burn pile right. than something that you've already invested a lot of time and money into that. You know, if you get it off by a little bit, that's when a thousandth of an inch starts to matter. Exactly. So can you test when you're developing? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all or nothing. Oh, well. It is. And then sometimes, uh, so sometimes I'll put film in my camera, but forget what type of film I put in there. And then I shoot and then I open it, getting ready to develop. And I shot it all wrong. So, for example, so the film is... Uh, based on sensitivity to light. So there's an ISO number. So the higher the ISO means the more sensitive it is to light. So if I have a low sensitive film, but I shoot it as if it were a high sensitive film. Everything's dark. Everything. <laughs> well, yeah, 
but you can develop to compensate for that. So, but I don't want to do that because that messes up how the film is supposed to look. Right. So, so I'll have to adjust. So I'll either have to dilute the developer or yeah, yeah. Dilute it way down. And then sometimes it takes longer to develop because it's really diluted. So you can compensate, but, but there's no, uh, the only way to really, well, you could, when you're shooting, you can do the test with the Polaroid, like just to make sure that in camera you're getting it right. right. But when you're ready to, when you're done, then nope, it's it's full steam ahead. <laughs> but it is fun when I get it right. Um, well, Tom, thank you so much for stopping by and talking. Give us a uh, plug yourself. Give us your give us your details. How we can find you. How we can uh, how people can go and and visit the room, the tasting room, and taste all of your amazing product. Well, you can find me at uh, 312 South Lucille Street. That's basically the uh, intersection of 4th Avenue South and South Lucille Street in Georgetown, which is kind of between the stadiums and Boeing Field in the Seattle area. And I'm as I mentioned, kind of there seven days a week, but I do my tastings on Saturdays and Sundays from 12 to 5. So love to have you come down and visit. Do you get emails? Do you want people to email you? Do you want people to visit the website? Do you want... Sure. They can... Uh, the, probably the easiest way to get a hold of me is is through the website. It's cloudlift.net. Cloudlift is all one word, and it's... Uh, C-L-O-U-D-L-I-F-T dot net. And there's a contact tab on there and there's a phone number and all kinds of things. Perfect. Well, I encourage everyone to go because it's one, my show, I really want it to be Seattle focused. So I try to talk to people from here that do cool things. Uh, so we want to support uh, local Seattle business. He makes great wine right in the center. Well, I'll just say in Seattle. Uh, so he definitely go out. You won't be uh, disappointed that you did. You'll love it. And follow us on social media and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio. And uh, again, thank you very much, Tom. Thanks, and, Carlos. And we'll see you later. <laughs>